Hey, y'all, I'm going to take a second to give a quick shout out to the official mortgage lender of the Hunt Lift Eat podcast. That's Casey Burns of Prime Lending Mortgage. I've known Casey for 10 years, and he's the only lender I use. I've used Casey to purchase two houses, and the process has been seamless and easy each time. He's the heart of an educator, and he truly cares about what's best for his clients. He specializes in VA loans, but can handle FHA, conventional investment loans as well. He's a true expert and specialist in his field, and there's no one I recommend more than Casey. You can contact Casey at casey.burns at primelending.com, reach him by phone at 919-710-1864. You can also check out all his reviews at www.closewithcasey.com. Thanks, y'all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hunt, Lift, Eat podcast brought to you by Hunt, Lift, Eat Official. I'm Carter McKenzie, and uh, this week we got an awesome guest coming at you from the world of wildlife and outdoor photography. We've got Chris Bianco coming at us. Uh, from formerly, I guess, originally from the great country of Canada, now living it up in Jackson, Wyoming. Uh, phenomenal photographer, outdoorsman, and hunter. And uh, Chris, welcome to the podcast, man. Cheers, buddy. It's been a long time coming, but I'm glad to be here with you guys. Yeah, from uh, up north, Montana North, as they call it. But, Montana uh, North. <laughs> I spent, I think, now 10 years in the States. I mean, I can't hide the fact that I'm Canadian from anybody. You hear me talk for like two minutes and they figure it out. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a great spot to be at here in Wyoming. So happy to be with you guys. Okay, man. Stoked to have you on. And uh, also joining us, we got uh, the one and only Scotty Eisen, the Skull Keeper, coming at us from California. What's up, man? What's up, boys? Happy to be here tonight. Happy to spend some time with yeah. Chris. I've been following him for a long time and excited to get him on the podcast. I think, I think uh, everybody will be stoked with what he has to say and uh definitely you know take a look at his instagram and uh you uh, you'll definitely be impressed for sure so i'm excited for tonight boys yeah i'm glad uh you worked through your technology speed bump there scotty and now you're on your son's chromebook from school and now we're, we're making it work dude the world of podcasting here we're doing it luckily every kid in the world has a laptop so uh you know my uh my video screen is not very good but luckily nobody's looking at me so it's all good and we got my uh, my co-host, co-producer, Bobby Light. What's up, man? What's going on, fellas? Uh, Sky, don't worry. I'm staring at you. You look great, man. look really good. Even though it's, uh, it's cutting in and out, you look beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. I can always count on you for a little bit of uh, support like that. Pick you up. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. All right, Chris. Let's get down to it, man. This has been uh, months in the making. We've, I've been following you for a long time, man. Uh, huge fan of your work. Big fan of uh, your love for the outdoors, man. Yeah, it's been, uh, I remember, I think like five or six months ago, you're trying to get me on the first few passes. I turned it down because I wasn't really hunting yet. Um, so that's a whole new venture for me this year. Um, certainly been dabbling in that for a while. Like I think it's just been this incremental journey I've been on. Uh, started, like, I don't know if you want to dive right into it, but like, I think it just started with the photos getting into the wildlife scene and just from there getting closer, closer and wanting to just do more with it. Um, and then likewise, moving out here, meeting a lot of like-minded people that are obviously like a huge population of hunters out here in Wyoming and across Montana and the mountain West. So you're going to run into folks that are part of it. Um, there's a huge crossover between the two groups, which I just totally love. And uh, just found myself, yeah, getting more into that this year. So 
to bring it back to what you said, yeah, I was, I was passing on it before, but like, this is going to be my first season hunting anything bigger than Turkey. So it's yeah. an exciting time and we're right in the middle of it right now. So it's, it's kind of cool to just take a pause on all the backcountry work and just sit at home for a little bit while my legs recover and I can walk again. Yeah, for sure, man. And I want to unpack, you know, I want to unpack all that and kind of your transition and venture into hunting. Um, cause not too dissimilarly, there's a, there's a lot of folks out there, myself included, who were late to kind of big game hunting. Um, I didn't grow up doing it. Didn't get into it until my twenties. Um, and I definitely want to jump into that, but do you want to give us a, a little rundown on kind of like where you grew up and, and kind of, uh, what your relationship with the outdoors was like growing up? Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll go way back. So, um, I'm from the Maritimes, which is, I always like to point people to it like Northeast of Maine. So Nova Scotia, Cole Harbor, uh, it's a very rural part of Canada. It's a part that many folks just don't even go to, even if you're a Canadian. Uh, and we locally, they're kind of like that. Uh, it's off the radar, off the grid. It's very similar culturally to like what I found out here in the mountains, which is, although like we grew up right on the ocean, there's a lot of connection to the land in both ways and not very, you know, city minded. It's more kind of agricultural, more rural, a little bit more down to earth. And having said that, I actually didn't grow up hunting at all. It's not part of my family's background. Um, so very much like late to it and independently minded on that myself. Like my brother and I just didn't really have much exposure to it. I think a large part of it is owing to how difficult it is to get firearms in Canada. Like you really need to have ample justification for why you're doing it. Um, regular checkups on like to maintain your license to hunt and to own a long gun. So it's, it's pretty like prohibitive and restrictive up North in that regard. And I think for that reason, we just did more around like other stuff, whether that was like fishing or, or others. So, um, that for me was a very late, uh, interest of mine. So I grew up, uh, really kind of around the ocean. We have a lot of landscape and not much wildlife. So I just was taking photos of that. Uh, worked in a bookstore for years during college and like through that kind of taught myself how to take photos, um, bought some cheap Nikon lenses and a camera body and just kept doing that for years and years, um, through work, which is not all related to photography. That's just sort of my side venture side gig, um, wound up in Toronto, which is our like major, major city in Canada, sort of the center of the universe in that country. Um, lived in the downtown core of that for like three years and, and very quickly discovered that I was not going to be a big city guy. So ended up moving to a slightly smaller city, but still big population, which was down in the Bay area. Um, so lived in California after three years in Toronto, another five years in San Francisco. And there I really started to latch on to like wildlife stuff. Like if that was coastal species or things that you'd find more interior, um, just kind of find myself doing that more and more. And then at some point, uh, made the perfect fit to moving out to Jackson, which is a spot that prior to COVID was just basically out of reach. Um, and then the world shut down for a good couple of years and I made the move out here. Um, and from there, it's just been like all wildlife because that's everything that's around. Um, so it's been a, a pretty like steady progression, just starting with landscapes and seascapes and moving up to bigger game. Um, so that's kind of like the, the whole camera side of it. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting for me because like my day job is in sales. So I'm stuck on screens and on phone calls pretty much 90% of the day. And even going way back to the start of the photography side of it, it was always like a mental escape. 
um, just a place to kind of decompress, uh, remove myself from like screens and really just kind of get more in touch with tangible hands-on things. Um, and that's still true today. Um, so although like I really enjoy the, the activity of it and I, I like the venture of it, I don't really think I'd ever want to make it my day job because it's always been a bit of an escape for me. And to rely on that as a source of income, I think would actually just kind of be a detriment to that. Um, so I just prefer to keep the two worlds separate, but it's really kind of given me this nice fine balance uh, across both of it. And the work side of it, the sales side of it has just been, you know, a really uh, steady way to keep doing what I love to do, which is this type of work. Growing up in Nova Scotia, you, you mentioned it, but I would have to imagine, you know, I've never been there and, you know, I've spent all my time in Ontario um, as far as like my experience with Canada, but based on what I know and what I see, I would imagine like the ocean and the water has such a direct impact to like living and culture and like, I think fresh seafood and I think, you know, fishing and I think that's, that's like what I picture um, and kind of saw a little bit of that when you went home recently and, and saw your saw your family back home, right? Is that like a major part of the culture there? Yeah, man. Ocean water is in my blood. Like I, I need to go back every couple of months or years uh, just because like I miss it. Um, mountains are awesome and they're they're majestic and huge on their own right. But there's something about just like the vastness of the ocean. Um, yeah, like half the jobs in uh, economy out in Nova Scotia and the Maritimes is like related to fishing. Um, so ocean agriculture, uh, it was really funny. Like for me growing up, lobster is like really cheap. It used to be dirt cheap. It's getting a little bit more expensive, but, uh, it wasn't really until I'd moved elsewhere that I realized like, holy shit, this stuff is expensive. Uh, like my, my family would tell stories about like growing up in school. They ate that as like their cafeteria food because it was like less than oh the cost God. of beef, it, which is just crazy. But like we in like Nova Scotia and Maine are like the two parts of the world. I think that harvest these red lobsters. So like for us, it's just, you know, kind of staple food. I always make a point to have a lot of it when I go back home, but uh, yeah, seafood is definitely a big part of it. And uh, it's, it's sort of a thing that I miss every time that I'm landlocked like I am right now. I love that, Chris. Uh, I imagine that that's probably a lot of the draw when you're living in San Francisco. I mean, because you're just surrounded by water, you know, essentially. But um, I'm curious, like what, you know, what you, you mentioned that, you know, really your draw to wildlife, you know, some of it um, occurred, you know, within the Bay Area in San Francisco. So what, what was it about the San Francisco that really drew you to, you know, whether it's photography or nature or whatever it is, but what were those aspects that really... Um, you know, spark that, that big interest? Yeah. Um, I guess it's complex. Like I would say actually like from a photography point of view, like the biggest draw to that area is just the light. Like it is kind of this weird um, intangible thing, but like there's something about the mixture of like the fog that they get out there. The fact that there's no obstruction between like the coastline where the sun sets just goes right down the horizon um so you just get this really kind of beautiful quality to the light like everybody sees photos from california they've all got that kind of golden glow and that was really true of what i was seeing with the camera too was like just on a regular interval just like gorgeous like sunset sunrise stuff um and then they got all the seabirds so i mean they've got like these big ass pelicans which they look like a uav drone just flying around up there um lots of like whale watching and stuff that you could do um it's just such a neat 
place. And I think if you could just like make it a little bit more spread out in terms of how many people are jammed into one area, it would be gorgeous. Um, but it's just so overwhelming too to like be going through a national park or a trail system and just always be bumping shoulder to shoulder with people. And where I grew up, I mean, you could walk the beaches for miles and not run into another soul. So I was pretty used to sparse conditions and moving out to a place with like 40 plus million people felt like a lot. Um, but you temper that with how gorgeous your surroundings are. And like, you meet some really great people out there too. Like I know California now gets a lot of bad rap and there's justification for that. Um, I have my horror stories to tell too, as anybody would have having lived there. Um, but I still got a good place for it in my heart and some of the best people, most unique and interesting people I've met were all from California or people that had moved from there, uh, moved to there from elsewhere. I think that was another staple was most people that I met in the Bay area were just from elsewhere and chose intentionally to wind up there, which I think is always fairly interesting. Like you really meet some driven folks as opposed to people that were just by circumstance brought and raised there. Um, and hadn't chosen to move. But if you make that deliberate choice to go, and I've always been someone that's been moving every few years, um, I find with that comes you know, some pretty unique personalities. And that was definitely a, a great uh, thing I took away from that experience over there and every other place I've lived as well too. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'll take that as a compliment, you know, because I love hearing people say that because California, is a, it's a beautiful place. Um, no matter what the rap is, I mean, unless you're here and you really experience it for yourself, like you did. And there are so many, uh, transplants out here coming from all over the country for whatever reason. But, um, you know, the wildlife out here, the nature, there are some huge nature lovers out here. Um, whether you're in the redwood forests or out in the coastline or, um, out in the hills, you know, people are very active here. Whether yep. they may not all be outdoorsmen or hunters or even agree with a lot of that stuff, but people do love the landscape out here and the animals and the wildlife that that are here. And, uh, you know, we are pretty blessed to be here, you know, um, and uh, but I love hearing positive stories about, you know, San Francisco or the Bay Area or California in general, you know, because. Uh, it is a beautiful landscape and, and, and there is a glow here and, uh, and I love, you know, your photos and, and your, your ability to kind of pick that up. So I love it. I love that you had that experience out here. So it's good. There's a movie quote that's kind of stuck in my head right now. Um, but it's something, it goes something like you can't love San Francisco and, uh, or you can't hate San Francisco unless you've loved it, which to me is kind of true. It's got a lot of problems, but you need to love it first before you can claim that you hate it because there needs to be reason as to why you want that change. Um, so yeah, I, I left that place with really good feelings, except on the very last day, my moving truck got smashed and grabbed and we had to reload the whole thing <laughs> the night before. Oh so gosh. kind of a, kind of a bittersweet farewell, but yeah, plenty of good memories and five years is the longest I've ever spent in one place. So I think that's a testament to how, how much uh, of an impact that had on me, both in terms of just like, personal, but also like creative work. And, and um, a couple of weeks ago, I was posting uh, for the anniversary of these fires that we had, like uh, it was probably two years ago now. Um, but it was the day that like the sky turned fucking orange. Like it was just from seven in the morning until dusk that night. Um, this weird eerie glow that just made like your monkey brain scream something primal, like you got to get out of there. And it was probably the most surreal day I've been through in a really long time. And my whole instinct that day was just to grab the camera and run outside and take photos. So that's what I did. Um, just documented it. And like 11 o'clock, 
12 o'clock in the afternoon, um, being able to see inside people's apartments and like headlights on cars and everything was as dark as it would have been at dusk, uh, just mm -hmm. crazy, crazy conditions. And that was just owing to a wildfire that we had that year. But yeah, you get these kind of bizarre confluence of like, like nature and tech and culture and everything just sort of mixes in that place. It's, it's always been this weird crucible of all these different things. And so it's, it's neat to experience. I would recommend anybody try it out. Living there is definitely not for everyone and it's, it's tough for sure. But, uh, all that said about California, I'm pretty damn happy I moved out to Wyoming. I'm, I'm not doing a, a travel ad for California. I'm just uh, yeah. sharing some some good feelings I had about the place at that time. Yeah, definitely. I remember the day you're talking about to a T. You know, I think it was such an eerie, unbelievable kind of uh, day for one, but week at that. That was actually uh, the fire. You know, there's I think multiple fires burning that week, and and the sky was red. Um, you had to, you know, you're driving throughout the day with your headlights on. It was so eerie. And that fire actually, that, that fire burned down our honey camp up North and, um, you know, caused massive devastation everywhere. I think my neighborhood actually got, uh, evacuated for that fire. Um, but, um, I remember that day and, uh, yeah, I'm, I imagine that day will kind of live, you know, in infamy for, for everybody that I kind of experienced it. But, um, again, uh, I, I, you know, I love your embracing the culture and, and, you know, the, the, the outdoors and the wildlife that, that California has to offer. But, um, I guess I'm even more excited that you're out in Wyoming because, uh, what you're doing out there and the pictures you're taking are just unbelievable. That, uh, before we get into that, I just wanted to ask you about that hunting season. Like, did that completely wreck the season for you guys or? Like if you lost your camp, that's definitely huge. But uh, how was like the conditions after that? Because I remember those fires, those were going on for like weeks or months even. It felt like forever. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, I was, we were actually out hunting um, that, that weekend and um, there was a, a dry lightning storm that came in and we sleep outside at hunting camp and we just had a shack basically with a kitchen and a table inside. Um, and uh, so we're sleeping outside and we're waking up still dark, but I thought somebody was walking around camp with, uh, either their phone light or a flashlight, just flashing everybody around. I'm like, what is that guy doing? But then I, I started to kind of awaken and, um, realize that the light was coming from the sky and it was hot out and, um, I've never experienced anything like it, but there was literally lightning flashes with no rain. Um, and even, uh, as the morning progressed, we were out kind of hiking the hills. I think it was a, it was a Sunday and, um, it was daylight and the sky would flash, um, out of nowhere. It was so, it was just so weird. And, um, so we left camp that day and the next day, uh, it sparked a fire over out of like Lake Hennessy and, um, and it burned and burned for a whole week. And then, uh, we thought everything was safe, but then the wind shifted and blew that fire right back towards our camp and it wrapped around the lake. Um, unfortunately, uh, the ranch manager at this ranch that we hunt, he was trying to fix the generator that ran the pump on the well. And so he kind of lost track of our hunting camp a little bit and the fire, you know, caught, caught an oak tree above and, and there it went, but it definitely impacted the uh, hunting season because, uh, they closed all the roads that access that, that area, um, for 
probably three weeks. And when they finally opened those roads up and we got access back to camp to go kind of check the devastation, uh, there's one more week of hunting left. And so we set up kind of just a, a base camp up and, and I did hunt. I did end up shooting a buck that year. It's the smallest buck I've ever shot. Cause I was kind of meat hunting that, that year at that point. And, um, uh, but hiking that landscape was like walking on the moon. It was crazy. Uh, we were, we were black from our head to our toes and just from the soot and the air and the ash on the ground, uh, the stumps were burning underground there. I remember sitting down and you can see heat signatures just coming off the ground because the ground was literally burning under, under the soil. And, um, you had to be real careful where you step because if you step, you know, you kind of got to stay away from the trees because now those trees are no longer there and it's just the roots burning underneath. Uh, you look out in the hills and you just see kind of billows of smoke coming out of, out of the ground. It, it was really, uh, really an amazing sight to see. Um, but, uh, you know, everything rebounded and I was just out there last week. I mean, there's new growth coming. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of the way it is nowadays, unfortunately, but it definitely impacted the season. And, um, you know, it's not like we have a, a big herd of blacktail out here to hunt, you know? Um, so the numbers are pretty limited from my experience at least anyway, but, um, I really don't think it hurt the the deer population much and, and certainly the turkeys are around and everything else like that, but, uh, impacted that season. Absolutely. Um, but it was, uh, it was just one of those experiences that you just look back on and uh, you know, you're thankful that, you know, everybody was safe and nobody died from it. You lose structures and whatever else like that. But, um, it was, uh, it, it was an impactful season that, that year and we'll never forget it. And it was just this year that we finally got our camp rebuilt. So, uh, we're thankful for that. And now our camp is, uh, 10 times better. <laughs> so, uh, we're not just, uh, hunting out of a shack now. So now we got pretty, something pretty legitimate. So we're happy about that. Man, that's wild hearing you talk about the ground smoking like that, like the underground fires. I remember, like, I think California has a lot of those eucalyptus trees, which I think they just basically ignite when they're set on fire. Um, I remember hearing about mm-hmm. some of them almost popping off like explosions if they got to uh, a certain temperature in some of those mega fires. So yeah, potentially like insanely dangerous, but lucky that uh, everybody made it through all right. I think those fires too are probably pretty good for like the I know the elk, especially if there's a, a wildfire and it goes through this timber, it, it almost creates like a better habitat for them after they get a lot of that grass that could build up that a tree canopy would have blocked before. So yeah, it probably was maybe good for them in the long haul. Um, but that's a wild season, man. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It was nuts. Chris, do y'all have a lot of <clears throat> fires up in uh, Wyoming this year? We've been really fortunate uh, up until like a week or two ago. Basically, like as soon as season kicked off, um, we started to get tons of smoke out of, I think it's primarily Idaho, maybe a little bit from Oregon as well. Um, It kind of changes on the day. Today is good. Uh, Two days ago, it just smells like campfire. You can't even glass further than like 400 yards. Um, So it depends. But compared to last summer, my first summer here, it was brutal. Like we had months where it was just constant smoke and haze. I don't know if that's just luck or like maybe these fires, you know, created a lot of better conditions in the years to come, burnt out a lot of that dead standing wood. Um, but we've been fortunate this year. Hopefully it sticks. Um, right now it's, it's kind of a little bit sunny, but I think we're due for rain all week. So hopefully that knocks it down and uh, leads to a better end to the season. 
I'd say overall, like we're a lot hotter than it's been and probably like unseasonably warm. I think we've been breaking temperatures, but for me, like tracking the rut, even crossing it against what happened last year, we're probably like two weeks behind where everything should be at. The bugling is just getting started. Um, the rut to me is, is basically not even really fully underway yet. And last year, by this time we were deep into it. Um, so the heat, the smoke, I think it's just throwing everything out of whack and the animals know it. Um, and they're just all responding in kind. So yeah, fingers crossed this cool weather, rain knocks down the smoke, puts the fires out and, and just kind of puts us back on track for a, a better fall. Cause right now it doesn't feel like fall. It feels like summer still. Yeah. Heck yeah. And before we jump into what I think is your favorite animal in the world, if I'm uh, yeah. taking a guess, uh, <laughs> Might have been how did you, there. Yeah. how did you make that transition? How did you end up in Jackson, Wyoming, man? Uh, I was out here a couple of trips, uh, before I decided to move. And those are just sort of like, you know, kind of, uh, dream escapes, things I'd want to do for a really long time, but never fundamentally thought, oh, this is going to be a feasible move. Um, Jackson's pretty remote. Uh, my field is really kind of based in the West and the East coast. So I'm square in the middle of everything. There is an airport here, but I was prior to COVID on flights, basically like two weeks out of every four. So half the road, half the month on the road. Um, and Jackson just seemed like a complete pipe dream, um, both because it's so expensive, but also just infeasible for work. But, um, COVID hit, moved out here because everyone was just doing remote work for a year. And I was like, Oh, I'll just make this work for a couple months. I just want to give it a shot. I would kick myself if I had the chance to move and, and didn't take it. So made the leap at, at the time, like COVID in, in San Francisco was just almost unbearable. And we had the smoke that year, the fires that Scotty was talking about. And it just sort of broke my spirit on the place. So I was like, I'll just take a break, move out to Jackson, do that for a couple of months and then probably have to move back. Um, but that move back hasn't happened yet. I'm like two years in, just signed for another year. So, you know, looking to make this as long-term as I can. Um, so that was uh, kind of the impetus for the move. Uh, it was sort of this one shot in the pan chance to make it happen. And I've been doing that a lot. Even when I moved to California, it was the same type of deal. Moving from Toronto to San Francisco seemed nuts. Had to get a sponsored visa through work. Um, had to get a green card to make that last. Um, so I've just been constantly kind of taking those little gambles on where I'm at. And so far it's paid off pretty good. So yeah, that's what, what brought me out this way. Yeah, I'm, I'm always curious because one of my best friends, Tim Marsh, he he quit his job in Atlanta. He was a project manager, construction project manager here. And we're the same age and he was doing well. And uh, he was like, dude, I fucking hate my job and I'm not married. I don't have any kids. We were like 27 at the time. He's like, when am I ever going to have the chance to do this? And uh, he's obsessed. He, he's a hunter and outdoorsman and loves to ski and, you know, was kind of deciding if he was going to quit his job and, and leave. And, and he did. And he went and drove a snowplow at y'all's airport for a year. And <laughs> yep. uh, I know a lot of guys was the happiest. Yeah. Oh, was the happiest I've seen him as long as I've known him. He's like, I love it. I love this place. I love my job. Now he's back in construction, but he's still in Jackson and he absolutely raves about it. He's like, you got to get out of here. This place is amazing. Yeah. For those who haven't been, I mean, it's, it's quite a unique place. Um, very small town. Like uh, Jackson Hole is kind of the popular name for it, but Jackson is a town proper. And it's like, I think 10,000 people, something like that. We're at 6,000 foot elevation. So way up in the mountains and every direction you point outside of Jackson is just either national park 
or wilderness or federal land. So tons of public land around you to take advantage of, whether that's for recreation or for hunting or elsewhere, and a lot of protections that come with that land. So most of the areas around us are undeveloped, um, which causes a lot of consternation because there's nowhere to live. Um, Jackson is very in demand, but very small, uh, which makes it incredibly expensive. Um, there's this running joke that like the billionaires have been pushing out the millionaires out of Jackson. And it's actually like a true statement. Um, the income for Teton County, which Jackson is in, I think is one of the top three in all of America. So I think like the Bay area and Manhattan are like two areas that compete with it. And we're number three or number two. Um, so it's, it's incredible the kind of wealth that you get here, but walking around, you wouldn't really feel it. Um, until you get to know your neighbors and, and realize that most people are only here for a couple of weeks because it's their third home and they're here for a ski lodge trip or whatever. <laughs> um, but it, it you know presents some really unique advantages. Like Grand Teton National Park is in my backyard. It takes me 20 minutes to get up there. Um, Yellowstone is 40 minutes, 60 minutes drive north of here. And Yellowstone is huge. So, I mean, you add that size to the parks that are around here and you just kind of have a, a wildlife lover's dream it's kind of a paradise right um you get grizzly bears you get wolves um a lot of these big apex predators that you wouldn't find almost anywhere else outside of like alaska so it's it's a very unique place but it's uh come with its challenges too because of that scale and and the pressure that you get from people coming in here i think for me when i discovered jackson i knew nothing about the ski hills or any of that which is how most people know about jackson hole um, there's a really famous ski resort just outside of town. There's another one in town. Um, so like skiers of world-class snowboarders and stuff too, um, have just been flocking here for years and years. Um, I knew nothing about that. I grew up skiing little Hills. I wouldn't even call them mountains where I grew up. Um, so I knew how to, you know, carve up some powder, but it was not something I'd done for years, especially being out in California. Like I just wasn't making trips up to Tahoe. So, um, moving out here, was like dusting those skis off after 15 years. Um, but what really drew me was just like the wildlife, just the, the crazy kind of access that they get. Um, I bring friends out here all the time. Uh, either they ask to come up or I ask them to come up, but, uh, I'll, I'll put them on a little guided tour and like the constant feedback is like, they can't get over how dense the wildlife is here. Cause like, I could be like in 20 minutes, I'll put you on some bison or some elk or what have you. And, guarantee you'll you'll get a sighting if you're out there um and that just doesn't happen anywhere all the other places that i've been you really have to strive and push just to get a sighting but here it's almost like you step out your front door and we actually have mule deer right outside my apartment some days so yeah it's uh it's a unique place and uh not one that uh, many people go to for the wildlife but once they discover that's here i think they keep making return trips uh for that reason yeah, it sounds like a wildlife photographer's paradise. I mean, just looking at the opportunity that you have to photograph that many diverse and like not only diverse, but like mature and healthy animals. It's like you're 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 in it, right? You're in the thick of it. Yeah, we're in the very thick of it right now. Like this is my favorite time to be here is between September and October. And unfortunately, it's like the prime time to do a lot of the stuff I love, like if you want to fish, this is the best time to fish. If you want to hunt, obviously this is the season to do it. If you want to catch animals in the rut when they're out and they're making the most, you know, active displays of mating or fighting or whatever, like this is the time to do it. If you're into religious landscapes, I mean, it doesn't look any prettier than it does right now. 
So it's sort of like, what do I do? You know, like I've got to budget my time and the next two months are just filled with anything I can squeak out from those days. But yeah, it's like you have your pick and it's, it's too much all at once. And I'm sure you guys experience that too. Like in other, most other states have the same problem. Come September, everything kicks off, even work. And it's like, how do you balance between all that? Um, you really kind of have to pick your battles on that. Definitely, Chris. Um, I have I have some limited experience in Wyoming. My grandpa drew a deer tag, and I um, I flew to Salt Lake City. I rented a car and drove to meet him on the side of the freeway in his little pop up camper to kind of help scout and guide for him one year. And uh, I think it was during COVID, but um, we were out in like Riverton, like Thermopolis area. And we could see the eastern slope of the Grand Tetons and they were just majestic looking from that side. And uh, and we were in kind of some flat land, kind of looked like Mars almost, really kind of irony, like red rocks. And um, we didn't see hardly any deer. Uh, we saw some deer on some on some private land, but nothing really on the uh, on in the in the unit we were hunting in. But geez, those, those mountain that those mountains are unbelievable out there. And I can only imagine what it's like to be kind of in them, you know, in the woods with your camera, you know, kind of searching and, and, and looking for animals. I, I would, I'd love to have the opportunity to get out there and, and, um, and see really what the, what that place has to offer. So, um, you're pretty lucky to be there. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. The, uh, the big titties, the, the grand Tetons, the French have a really funny way with words, but, uh, they do kind of just like raise right up out of nothing. Like you're in the Valley. It's stark flat to just insane rise. Like you go up, I think it's like 6,000, 8,000 foot, um, from just flat to that. Um, and they disappear, you know, like you were saying about the landscape you were at near Thermop and like Riverton, like most of Wyoming looks kind of like the surface of Mars to me. Like it's really kind of this high desert, badlands um you can see partly why it's not very densely habited it's just so much like Mm -hmm. terrain that you can't even like cultivate anything on um the wind just rips through a lot of the state much of the year like you'll get 40 mile per hour gusts on the regular um and you combine that with the really cold winter like it gets down to like minus 30 is not unheard of most days are like anywhere between freezing down to minus 40 in the winter and it's a long winter so keeps people out. I think I grew up, uh, you know, having the advantage of like the Canadian antifreeze in the blood. I'm okay with cold. I prefer cold <laughs> over heat. I can't survive in temperatures over like 78 degrees. <laughs> so this is more my speed. Um, but it, it also kind of keeps a lot of, uh, the short term occupants, as I'll call them, uh, these transient visitors that would come through. Uh, they love the idea of Wyoming in the summer and they visit in the fall, but then come the winter, they all want to bail. Cause it is hard and it is, it is a, a rough place, but you know, with that, like you just get these amazing kind of sightings in the winter that you don't see, um, any other time of the year. My favorite time to go out and photograph any of these animals is in the dead of winter. Cause they just look so hardy and you have nothing but awe and admiration for like these bison that are just thriving out there and they don't give a shit about how cold it is. I'm minus 40 and I'm covered in five different layers of jackets and gloves and hat and barely alive. And these guys are just, you know, kicking it like it's nothing. Um, same go with the elk. We get tens of thousands in the refuge here in town, the national elk refuge. Um, you get birds that live here throughout the winter, like these, uh, golden eagles and bald eagles. 
it's just crazy. And they're not, um, I would say their behavior is starkly different from how it is any other time of the year. They just don't seem bothered by folks. Like you can really get up close. They don't seem pressured. They don't seem phased by you being there. They're almost probably more impressed. like, Hey, what's this dude doing on this, you know, ice cold winter. Um, but it just kind of leads to some really unique sightings. Like probably my favorite shots I've taken have all been winter. They just look badass. You see the bison with the snow paint. They look like they're these kind of tribal warriors with the face paint on and they just look damn cool. So, um, I love the winter. I love this, this region, but I think if I were to be anywhere in Wyoming, especially in the winter, it would just be in this Northwest corner of it because the rest is just so stark and barren and really windy and, um, just uninhabited for the most part. The same goes for the animals. Like you just won't find much, but for whatever reason, this pocket Northwest right on the border of Yellowstone, uh, it, it really kind of mirrors the Southern part of Montana. Um, here it's just like this, you know, ecological, uh, wonder place. It's just crazy. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a refuge almost like, you know, the animals can, like you said, you know, it's hard for them to inhabit these, some of these badland areas. And so, you know, they kind of flock to that area and they find refuge there. And, uh, I would imagine, do, do you think that mountain range, does it just cut the wind away, you know, once the wind comes up and hits it and then that's what kind of protects you guys up there? Probably. Yeah. I, I figured that probably is very true. Um, a lot more timber too. Like we just get trees here. You won't see much tree line in, in the rest of the state or even the neighboring states um, east of us. So uh, yeah, that's probably all a factor. On the, the flip side, while you're saying that, I was just kind of thinking through like, what are the consequences of everything being congregated in one place? And although it's great for some photography, we get a ton of grizzlies bears out here and uh, more than I would say we can safely manage and well over like the carrying capacity of where they should be at. So um, it's allowed a lot of species to thrive and some maybe too much. And it makes it a bit hairy going out there, um, especially into like the deep back country when you're contending with all that you know, inhabits this place and really has thrived and continued to thrive. And the bears are definitely a big part of that. Yeah, definitely. Snow paint, by the way, learning something new right now. I love that. And those are some of my favorite pictures that you've taken with the moose and the, and the, and the bison with just, you know, just covered with a nice little light coating of snow over them and just living life, you know, but, uh, I love that. I'm going to take that with me. But, yeah. um, so I just made you that mentioned, up on the spot. <laughs> well, that's pretty good, man. It's pretty good. Uh, it's going to carry on. So you mentioned getting out in the backcountry. So what's your, what's your kind of process? Like, are you, are you loading your pack up and heading out and taking pictures or kind of what, or, you know, what, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, definitely getting like, that's primarily all I do nowadays. Uh, when I first moved out here, I was still trying to map out the spot and what everybody does is drive in their cars and their trucks and, um, that really kind of bothered me. I felt like I was doing like these roadside safari tour photography things and it didn't feel very authentic. It definitely felt even almost a little bit exploitative. You're just driving around and snapping shots out of your vehicle, which is fine and, and no fault to a lot of my friends out here that, uh, they make that their business and, uh, it's a very efficient way to get some of these shots, but I've been more inclined lately, especially the last year to really, put some boots on the ground and just kind of hoof it out there as deep as I can go and probe areas that I kind of reckon just based on where I've seen that, like not many people have been through in many, many, many years or ever. Uh, so that's kind of fun. Like you're really kind of, you're treading and probing new 
new terrain that most people will never get to see. And I think that's something that uh, talking to a lot of hunters too, I think express that same sentiment. Like you're seeing parts of this country and the wilderness and, and it's true kind of untapped, unspoiled state. Um, you go into some of these like protected wildlands and, and national forests and um, some of that land hasn't been touched since they were established, uh, those protections, and, and even well before that. So uh, it's quite unique. Um, and I find the further I can go, the more unique settings I get. Um, what's been kind of interesting for me is trying to find that balance between how much do I pack out there from a photography kit point of view versus like like trading off between the weight and like how far I'm willing to go. I find obviously with greater distance comes uh, more remote areas and maybe something more unique. Um, but with the added weight, you get more possibilities. You could bring along a bigger lens or a tripod or different parts of kit um, that might assist you in taking those uh, shots or those videos. So it's sort of this balance that I've been trying to figure out for myself is, you know, how far can I go with a reasonable amount of weight and still get away with something that I would, you know, be proud to print up later or to show off later. Um, so that, that's been kind of an interesting take on it. Uh, I will say that when I go out, like my mental process now is a bit different too. Like I'm often going out with a single target in mind in terms of like what I want to shoot. And that's mm. different from years ago where, where I was sort of scatterbrained on it. I was like, I'll just go, I'll pick an area and like what's there. I'll try and find something that I can take advantage of. But nowadays, I think a lot of it comes with just knowing the terrain a bit better knowing their habitats where you can kind of roughly find them because a lot of these guys are just very predictable. They're on the same circuit. You might find them in the same rough area, obviously never a guarantee, but um, with some good, you know, predictability, you can get on them. Um, so now I'll be like, okay, today I'm going to try and find some elk or, you know, sorry to drop that again. I just, you know, <laughs> as you know, big elk guy. Uh, so, you know, I'll pick elk and I'll be like, I want to get this particular herd. I kind of know where they're at. And I pick up everything in terms of what I need to make that shot happen and, and try and pick even a time of day to, you know, kind of best fit with when I know where they're going to be at. Um, so I'm much more targeted. And I think I'm not alone in that. A lot of the best photographers I met out here uh, kind of gave me the same advice. They're like, rather than just drive around and try and find something, if you can target a place or a species, um, you'll be a lot more effective and productive. And I found that to be fairly true. I wish I could guarantee it every time because... I'll take friends out and they'll be like, can you put me on some wolves? I'm like, dude, no, like I see, wolves. <laughs> I've seen wolves like three or four times in my life up close. Um, unless you want to see like a blob on the horizon that I'll be like, you know, through the spotter scope. Yeah, that's a wolf. I guarantee you. Um, but otherwise, yeah, uh, for the most part, most of these species, you can, you can kind of gauge where they're at and plan your, your outings and your trips around that. And we've got the advantage too, of how close I am to a lot of these guys. Like I can, take off time after work wraps in the evening or ideally what I've been doing lately is just getting up super damn early, like four 30, I'll be on the road, get out there first light, even before first light snap some video or some shots and be back at my desk here before nine when I'm doing my day job. So works out pretty good. And just another, you know, benefit of, of being out here. What you're doing with this process is going to directly translate to hunting success for you without a doubt. I mean, you were now that you, you phrased it like that, like you're targeting, you have a target in mind. Uh, you, you are going to develop woodsmanship and just wood woodsman craft that 
hunt, tons of hunters don't have, right? Because a lot of hunters are lazy too. Not to say like, not to reference photographers who shoot off the side of the road or lazy or whatever, but a lot of hunters do that too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even hunters that hunt public land, right? Uh, even here in Georgia, and I've hunted out in Wyoming a couple times, most folks don't go within a couple hundred yards off the road. Uh, and it's the same. And if you want that that photograph that you have in your mind, if you want that buck that you have in your mind, uh, you're going to have to be willing to to go that distance and, and haul all the gear. And I know camera gear is not light at all. Batteries are heavy as shit. Lenses are heavy. I mean, you have a lot of gear that you're hoofing around. And I think that's your process is kind of really what drew me to you. And I was like, oh, this guy, this guy's like one of us. Like this guy gets it. Like this is like you're going back in there with uh, with a mission in mind. Um, and I, I'm stoked to see your hunting season, man, because all that's going to translate to success for you. I mean, you're, the encounters that you have with your videography uh, and, and your photographs, when I know you're like in the backcountry, I'm like, holy shit, this guy's going to be the greatest hunter in the world. Like everybody's going to be begging to go hunt with this guy. That was funny you bring up like the packs because I've carried out both now, like my hunting kit and my photography kit. I'd say the photography kit weighs a fair bit more, um, like a couple of pounds easy. Um, it's also just more cumbersome, right? Like you've just got these huge lenses. I've carried around this. Like, we all joke that it's like the hand cannon, but it's like a 400 millimeter bazooka. Um, but yeah, like I really do hope and I've got confidence that like the work I've been doing the last two years, trying to get stocks on these animals, um, get as close in as I can. It really is going to translate to some success hunting. And I've been helping a buddy, uh, the last couple of weeks with his bow tag. I'm not doing a bow hunt this year. Um, didn't feel like I could confidently pull that off enough yet. I wanted a little bit more practice with that, but doing rifle in October, um, and we're obviously working on elk right now, but last, uh, fall, like all of September, I was up every day at four. I didn't miss a day that month. Um, just trying to get them because they were running from the beginning of September until like end of season. Whereas now they're still not quite there yet. So we're a couple of weeks behind, but yeah, I was just using those mornings and those opportunities to figure out what worked. Like it was a kind of fun learning trial to figure out their behavior, um, learn how far you can push it, like trying to, uh, figure out where the threshold is. Cause I, I think elk are probably one of the least forgiving species of any of that I've tried to get on. Um, like national parks aside, I think those guys are kind of conditioned for people. Um, you can get closer up on them, but if you're doing backcountry stuff, which is what I've really been pushing myself to do this year and, and late last year too, um, those guys are scared to death of people. And you contrast that with like the park elk in Estes in Colorado. And those guys just don't feel hunting pressure, but the ones out here, you can tell that they have been pressured. They've been hunted. Um, a lot of these bigger elk have just been dodging people for years. Um, and they, they will just jump at the sight or scent of you. So very little forgiveness and trying to figure out where that threshold is, is like, I recognize that he's got his head up. He's maybe seen something that's off. Um, but I know I can push it a little bit further. And obviously with that comes just a ton of failure, like blown stock after blown stock, um, figuring out a lot of what doesn't work and then just sticking to the few things that do seem to, you know, lend themselves to a little bit of success. So I think that's translated a bit to my work. I've just been finding I'm getting closer and closer. Um, and that's, yeah, like just owing to putting the time in with these, with these animals and figuring them out. Um, cause they do have a really unique kind of set behaviors and hierarchy. And 
that's just one of the reasons I love that animal so much is because they are so structured and there's a lot more going on there than just, you know, some big herd animal that moves with the group. Like they'll interact with each other. You blow one elk that's way off on his own and he will like go the extra mile to alert everybody else before they all run off together. Um, so just these really kind of unique observations you make taking photos or taking videos. Um, but in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking like, yeah, I want to apply this towards my hunt as well. And even putting other people on animals, like I think there's a lot of overlap. I, I might have mentioned at the very beginning, but I think between the hunting world, the guiding world and photography, there's just so much um, crossover and cross pollination of skill. Like it, it's really fundamentally the same thing, whether you're shooting with a camera or a rifle or just learning to track an animal, whether that's for the purpose of just seeing it as a guide, you know, showing it to people, photographing it or, you know, like putting an arrow through it or putting a round through it. Like, I think all those things have a lot of correlation and it's, it's just kind of, yeah, it's built on each other. And through that, I've met a lot of like-minded folks that might come from totally different disciplines, but I think we all fundamentally share that same respect for it and just trying to better those skills all the time, whether that's, you know, through that exact practice of hunting or other things that, you know, relate to it. Yeah, that's awesome, Chris. I, I, I love the overlap, you know, and, and I love that you have the ability to do all of that. So when you do, when you do go out hunting, um, so how far, how far do you have to go, you know, for where your hunt is how far do you have to travel to, to get in there and be, you know, you have your tag and everything to go hunt? Yeah. So the unit, obviously I'm not going to say much about where we're hunting at the moment, but, uh, it's about a 40 minute drive to the next town. And then maybe like an hour down some backcountry roads. And then from there, mm -hmm. you're putting maybe 4,000 foot elevation gain, um, starting at 6,000. But like me and this other guy both live here, so we're conditioned for it. Um, that said, I got pretty screwed on the trip back to Canada, like Flatlander trying to live that lifestyle for three weeks and then coming back to 6,000 foot. I felt like all that conditioning I did this summer just got out the window. Um, so it's a little bit of a climb to get back up and that's why I've been a bit thankful that it's been slow outside. It's like allowed me to just get back into form fitness for that because it's tough, man. Like you are hauling and dealing with temperatures that you just traditionally aren't doing this type of year. Uh, when we'd put in at first light, it was something like 40 degrees, but by midday it was 95 when we were coming down and wow. you're thinking that's in the back of your mind too, even huge swings yeah and that's on the regular but it's just so much higher than it normally would be like uh you're probably supposed to be waking up to like 25 30 and getting up to maybe 75 but yeah starting at 45 and going up to 95 is is tough and we were thinking like if we even got a like a bull at this point like could we haul it back before it started to expire from the heat like just open questions like that you just kind of question whether this is the smart time to be doing this. My buddy's a lot more versed in this than I am. He's been hunting all of his life. Um, but I think we're both pretty confident in each other's abilities to like track this stuff. Like he, he recruited me on for it because he's just been seeing me on elk nonstop all summer. He's like, dude, you know how to like get on these guys? I'm like, yeah, probably. <laughs> but uh, for me, it's like a chance to learn from him. Like that's been my only introduction to hunting is through friends and mentors um, trying to pick up from guys that have been doing it all their life, what works, how do you kind of conduct these things? I've been really fascinated by the process. Like, obviously I want him to get his bull and we're going to do everything to happen to make that happen. Um, but every hunt that I've been a part of, I've just been trying to absorb and learn a bit about that for myself, because for me, that's just like kind of this, you know, deep dive introduction, 
Cole's like right, you know, feet to the fire, good way to test yourself. Um, but also just a really good way to learn. Yeah. It's the best way to learn, right? Yeah. Well, uh, I'm a stubborn headed, stubborn headed guy who needs to fail a lot before yep. any lessons stick. So like, yeah, if I have an opportunity to, <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll frustrate you for sure. Oh, Same yeah. goes with photography, man. Yeah, I was going to say, fun. there's probably a lot of correlation there, man. It's not like you can just go out there and snap a picture, right? And a lot of folks no, think yeah, you can yeah. just go buy a tag and then go uh, buying a tag means you get to kill an elk and buddy, that's just not the case, right? Facts. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. like you guys have noticed in the last couple of years, just a huge uptick in folks like myself who have been more interested in it. Like I think social media is a big part of that. Seeing that um, has an impact, positive and negative. Um, I've been kind of fascinated with that impact myself. Like I think the exposure is good. And I almost see this from the, the kind of tourism slash um, uh, animal photography world as well. Like people get these shots on social media of these bears or wolves and they all want to do the same thing. And it just increases the pressure on the place and makes people, I don't know, a bit more reckless in terms of how they conduct themselves and a lot more um, just jumping into it without thinking about the consequences. And from like the hunting side of it, like I wonder too what the impact is going to be from broader exposure to, um, you know, a, a sport that maybe not a lot of people have a deep fundamental appreciation for, or maybe even some adhorrence for, like, I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there. If all that you're seeing are people posting trophies on social media, I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, same goes with like people posting these really tight crop shots of bears or wolves or whatever. Like, I think that also leads to some weird perceptions of these animals. And you get these stories about like, should we call the world the wolf population or not? Um, so that, that sort of impact from just a broader aperture coming out of Instagram or things like that, I, I find it kind of fascinating, but, um, to, to bridge a very long winded way of getting to this question, like, have you guys noticed, uh, a, an uptick just in terms of like how many guys are at the trailhead? Like every time that I've gone out this month, parking lots are full. All that we heard calling a couple of weeks ago on the mountain were other hunters, not bulls. Um, so it seems to me like there's a huge uptick in people that are embracing the sport for good or bad, but, uh, that seems to be the trend at the moment. Yeah, there's definitely a massive uptick and you, you can see it in number of licenses sold across the West and Colorado is a pretty good, uh, litmus test for that with how many over the counter tags they sell, they sell just being the most popular over the counter elk, uh, tag out there. And, you know, a lot of states are beginning to reconsider tag allocation. Wyoming being one of them who passed that 90-10 law for the for the big five in Wyoming, giving residents more preference to non-residents. Um, and I imagine that's going to happen in states across across the West. Uh, Colorado is going to have to. They're going to have to cut back. I would I would imagine if I if I had my crystal ball here, that would be my. You know my my guess there but scotty's more i've never hunted in colorado scotty's more experienced and i've never hunted elk either i've only hunted mule deer so yeah well for i mean and i i've been lucky i mean i you know i i am fortunate enough to get to hunt private land when i do go to colorado uh there is some public land that we do hunt there's always a trailer or two parked in there ready to go some have horses some don't but you know people are getting out there and and uh you know, it's good for the sport, you know, in the long run, I think, I mean, just involving more people, it's just the, the more mentorship is out there. Um, no doubt social media has some 
you know, you can attribute some of that to social media. You can maybe even attribute some of, uh, uh, maybe whether it be photography or just outdoors or hunting, but to COVID, you know, I mean, people are just like, I want to get out, you know, I want to go do something. I want to do something new, or I want to do something that I've always wanted to do and never got the chance to do. Um, and so, uh, people are definitely out and about and, um, you know, you're in the heart of it over there. People travel from long distances to get to Jackson hole, to, to visit, to go ski, to, you know, uh, go to Yellowstone or whatever they're doing. Um, but, uh, there's definitely a big uptick and, um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're spot on with all, all of your, all of your thoughts on that because, you know, people want to get out, people want to hunt and, um, and people want to just get out and enjoy nature, get out, get out of their house. Yeah. It's incredible. The, the types of folks that you get through here, not just like by background, but like what they do. Um, you'll get like a TV producer that's here on a hunting trip or a fishing guided trip. Um, and it sort of led to some weird opportunities for me, which I didn't expect, but very much embrace and welcome. And it, it's people that have these really rare tags. They've been applying for this tag for like 10, 20 years and they want documentation. They want photos and videos to remember it by, but also to show their friends or post on Instagram. Um, and so that for me is an area that I'd like to kind of dabble in more. I've been doing a little bit of it this year, but just filming people's hunts. Um, they want someone that's going to be along, obviously able to take the photo or the video, but also have some understanding in terms of how the, how to carry out that hunt and not blow their stock or not blow their opportunity. So it's a really niche market. I don't think it's one that's been too tapped yet. Um, but it's material that I love making. Like I've been doing these films of some of the bow hunt and just other things, um, with friends that are more related to hunting. And, and it's just, I don't know, it's, it's a lot more interesting to me now than some of the wildlife stuff. And maybe that's just another natural progression to this. Like started doing the landscapes, got more into the wildlife. And now I want to combine the wildlife with some action and sport and hunting. And so like, maybe that's the next step of it. But um, with those opportunities that you're talking about, Scotty, and, the, and all the traffic and volume that comes through here, you have a lot of people with cash to burn and they're on a really special hunt that they want to just remember um, and have some, you know, memorabilia from besides just the trophy at the end, but just the process. And I love the process, man. Like I, I, I appreciate if you can get a really good animal, but I like the whole end to end step of that process. Like even from the scouting phase, which there's just so much to the, the sport that I had no awareness of until I tried to do it myself, but recognizing and coming to recognize that it is a year long endeavor. Like if you're doing it right and you're not the type of lazy hunter that was mentioned before, um, you're out there like trekking these grounds and, and tracking these animals for months and months, pretty much the whole year. Um, and if you really love it, that's just what you want to do anyway. Um, for me, that's kind of translate to the photography too. Is like, I would be doing this whether I'm paid for it or not. I'm not paid for it, but I've just, that's how I love to spend my time. And I think a lot of the hunters I know just love these animals that much that they're just willing to get out there at every opportunity, um, to follow them, learn from them, see them. Um, and then, you know, when the season comes, you're all the better prepared because you've done that work, you know, where they're at, you figured out the behavior, you figured out what works and what doesn't. And yeah, it all just kind of comes together quite nicely in a little package. You just hope everything works out. Obviously you can't guarantee anything, but it doesn't hurt to put that legwork in. Yeah. I'm thrilled. You're jumping into it this season, man. And I'm excited to follow you along and, uh, you know, watch your success. It'll be success whether you get an animal or not, man. Um, 
it's it's the greatest greatest thing in the world and I'm it's kind of awesome that I'm kind of jealous that you like get to be this badass photographer and you get to hunt elk in the same season like I got to step my game up <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's going to be any uh, photos or videos of me hunting. I'm just going to be way too occupied with that. But yeah, uh, if you try to yeah. do too much, sometimes it, it yeah, you can yeah. ruin a stock or you can, you know, I've done that before trying to film hunt, self film and like it can get a little squirrely. You need, you need an extra pair of hands. You sure do. I, I just admire those like videographers that film their hunts. Like there's some really good ones up on YouTube that I'll, I'll dive into their channel, but it's like, damn dude like how do you do that you've got like three tripods and different cameras mm -hmm. running and like those moments happen so quick photos or hunting it's literally seconds a lot of the time and all that comes together mm -hmm. and how you just put a pause on that and say oh you know could you just move into frame or you know i haven't got the aperture right on my camera like doesn't happen you it really just you need an extra pair of hands like you said so hopefully you know i'll be that extra pair for another buddy or other people that would be willing to take that on at some point in future, but it's an area I definitely want to get into. And it's one that I don't see a whole lot of uh, that type of media out there, guys that are doing that type of work. I'll be in, yeah. uh, I'll be in Montana, November 15th. If you want to hang out, Chris and bring a camera. <laughs> Sweet. I, I can take <laughs> practice or, or be a human pack mule. I can do either one. So yeah, happy to help. Definitely. I, I, I just want to echo what Carter said, but I, when I first saw you, you posted some, um, it was, it was some hunt videos, you know, just, and I was like, man, he's on a hunt right now. And I've always just followed your photos. And I was stoked when I saw that. I was like, wow, he's kind of branching off and doing some hunts and stuff now. And, and, uh, so I'm, I'm with Carter on that. I mean, it's going to be exciting to see kind of how your hunt goes, knowing it's coming up, of course. And, uh, and kind of seeing how that all transpires and see how you can, you know, document that along the way. Uh, likewise, I don't know how those guys do it either out there hiking around. I mean, I got my iPhone. I don't carry a camera or anything with me, but um, I'm always just like, how do these guys do it? I think I know how they do it. I mean, they hunt in, they hunt in packs themselves. I mean, they got like four guys, you know, and different angles and every guy's got a different camera. And uh, so they definitely have that kind of you know, they, they do it together as a team and you need probably more than two sets of hands to actually do it. Right. And then of course, all the editing and everything else that comes after it is just, you know, there's some guy really good, um, you know, videographers that are, that are videoing their hunts. And now they're literally making, you know, short films out of a hunt. And, and I mean, mm -hmm. I stay up late at night <laughs> watching those videos and just get enthralled in, in what's happening. You know, you start to learn who they are and, um, and, uh, and learn different tactics and, and see different animals, of course, you know, so, uh, it's really impressive. And I love that you're kind of stepping foot into that arena. Yeah. It's, it's funny. You mentioned those videographers, like I've, because I've started to change up the, the type of material I'm posting out there, like I'm starting to get more connected with these guys before, I think because it was just purely wildlife landscape, maybe it didn't cross their radar, but I've met a few of them. I, I would call some of my best friends out here. Um, guys that work in that field actually like that produce those types of films those shorts that you're talking about and I mean they're just like brilliant folks like I I'm stunned by their ability to do all this stuff like wear five different hats when they're out there they're hunting themselves they might have their own tag they're guiding someone else's hunt they're filming it they're taking photos they do the editing after on both of those things um, neither of which is easy um, and super time consuming and just being able to like handle the logistics of all that is crazy but um, I wasn't really sure what the, the reception would be um, starting to post more of the behind the scenes stuff. 
Like, I think that was for me a, a turning point in terms of like broadening out the audience was I used to just post the photos um, and then I started to get more into like the stories and just trying to document a bit more along my process of what I do. Um, and I think people saw, like Carter was saying, that I'm doing a lot of backcountry stuff. I'm not just doing it from the car seat. Um, and I think that just has a bit more earnestness to it. And it's a lot more messy and there's a lot more failure. And I try to show both because um, it's like uh, someone mentioned before, you just see, you know, like the highlight reel and, and there's so much failure, um, but you try and take something away from that and learn a bit from it. Um, and I think I just like to show the process, whether it's a good result or not. Um, so that, that too, I think has broadened out the audience that I've got and, um, drawn in people, I think that are a bit more like-minded and just willing to put like some sweat, blood and tears into it rather than this really polished photo, but you don't know how that got there. And in this age of like being able to Photoshop everything or sky replace or, um, just kind of really polish things up. Um, if you see the, you know, the behind the scenes of how that sausage was made, I think it's more interesting. Um, it's a bit more earnest and raw. So yeah, I try and try and do that. I'm glad it's had a, a pretty good reception so far. I know that not all my, uh, my friends are, are cool with hunting and we both, you know, have very, um, a lot of mutual respect on our different points of view. Um, for me, actually, like I have a degree in biology and English and I barely use the biology. I couldn't find any work for it, but the English degree has lent it really self, uh, quite well to the sales role. Um, but like in the back of my mind all the time, I'm thinking about these things that we studied back in those college programs of like, how do you, you know, manage populations? And so population management is really, a fundamental part of why I'm comfortable with hunting and same goes with like being a meat eater. I want to know responsibly and ethically how that meat was harvested. We're going to eat, I'm going to eat and my family's going to eat meat regardless. Um, but the, you know, wouldn't you feel awfully better if you knew the whole process of how that meat was sourced and how you got it versus just some arbitrary factory farm where that animal had a really shitty quality of life. Um, you know, I feel a lot better eating the things that I do if I know where that came from. So all those things kind of factor into my headspace in terms of why I chose to hunt. Um, and I understand too, likewise, from those other subsets of friends that aren't for it, um, why they're against it, especially like if they're a nature photographer. Um, one of the biggest questions I get is, you know, like, how are you comfortable killing these animals if you spend so much time and obviously love them as much as you do? Like elk, you know, that's my tag for this year. Uh, favorite animal by far, like they're like a huge part of what I spend my year following. Um, and I have massive respect for that animal, but for that reason, um, I, I don't know, like it, it's this quagmire I've got in my head is like, I love this animal and I'd like to see it thrive. And I think being able to healthily in a healthy way, manage those populations, um, is a great way to, you know, ensure that continued conservation of the animal. And the same goes with how hunters help uh, conservation in general. Um, the money that's raised through tags and through hunting is one of the biggest reasons that these populations continue to thrive and do well today. So it's a worthwhile endeavor. And I think everybody just has to dig into it for themselves and um, don't listen to any one guy preach to you why you should or shouldn't do it. I think it's important that everybody kind of finds that self-discovery on it. Um, obviously read a lot of sources, listen to a lot of voices and people, um, but it's really important that you figure that out for yourself. And that was something I took a long time um, to arrive at myself. And um, I, I guess one of the only pushbacks that I've given lately about hunting are to the people that just picked it up on a whim and 
asked me maybe like a month ago, like, hey, can we go hunting with you? And I know this person, just hypothetical, uh, wasn't talking about hunting before, never really crossed their minds and suddenly have a, a stark interest in it. And I think owing to that is like social media. They just want to, they've been seeing this stuff either through me or through other people. And they're like, yeah, that looks pretty cool. I want to be a part of that. But I don't know if it's the healthiest thing to just jump into. I think you really have to go through that self-discovery. You have to figure out for yourself why you want to do it. And that why should not just be, I want to post a nice video or a, a trophy photo of me. I think it's got to go a lot deeper than that if you're going to be doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, I think that was incredibly well said, man. And then I wanted to ask, I have written down right here. I uh, wanted to ask about how I, I know elk are your favorite animal by far, because there's not a lot of mule deer on your pictures, but mule deer are my favorite animal. I think they're the coolest yeah. thing on the planet earth. But like, how do you think that's going to impact your relationship with them? And it's, uh, you answered it perfectly. It's okay for it to be complicated, right? You want this mm -hmm. animal to thrive and you want to see them be healthy on the landscape. But you know what else is really cool is, feeding my family with that meat that you went out and, and earned and, and worked your ass off for. Um, yeah. And I think and it's okay a, a for really important. I, I think it has to be, I think if it's too easy for you, there's almost something awry there. Like you have to kind of wonder why are you so comfortable with just killing an animal? You know, like you think you have to have a good reason besides that to do it. Um, I know for me, like a major motivator has been ensuring that I'm just deadly accurate with my rifle. Cause I don't want to, injure it and not give it a clean end. Um, that to me would just be a, a, like an incredible heartbreak. And that's why too, I chose not to do archery this year. Cause I just feel like I can't reliably guarantee that shot yet. Um, so I think like trying to, to parcel that out is in, in a clean and ethical way is really important to me. And that's been something I've been grappling with too, is just making sure like I'm skilled up to do that. Um, Cause I don't want to make it messy and I don't want to have it suffer. Cause I, I really do uh, admire and love those animals. And yeah, the meat is like the bigger driver. I think obviously I'm going to try and shoot the biggest buck I can, but if it's not this monster, you know, like I'll still take the shot because I still want the meat at the end of the season. Um, and that's going to fill my freezer and probably feed me for the majority of the year. I'll probably have more meat than I'll know what to do with, frankly. Um, so that that's, I think on the scope of like balancing out the ethics of, animals dying in a factory farm versus me killing one animal that I have a lot of affection for, I'd feel a lot better about that latter option than the former. Um, you know, you really just, I think a lot of people glaze over some of the inconvenient ethics of like what their day-to-day -day entails. Like, you know, like, where does my food come from? I met a girl in California that literally thought she told me that it came from the grocery store, her meat. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like that's like, it doesn't just come packaged there, you know, it has to come from an animal and that animal was slaughtered in some way. Um, so yeah, just because there's organic labeled on your, your grocery bought meat doesn't mean that it had a, a clean end or a good life. And I can guarantee that the animal that I'm going to be after back in the, in the country here is lived a really good life. And if I get a big bull, he's had years of doing that. And, um, it's part of a natural process too, that like we just fundamentally do, but because we have all those conveniences today, it's really easy to sidestep that and just put it off to the side, back to your mind, not think about it. So yeah, if you're doing hunting, I think you're thinking about that stuff all the time. I think it's really first and foremost in your thoughts, just basic fundamental stuff. Like where does your food come from? How do you feed your family? Um, 
it's past times as well that I think are just very gratifying. Like it's nothing better uh, for me than just stepping out there and being with these animals and in really far off remote places that most folks will see or appreciate. So yeah, it's all uh, all part of the process for me mentally in that headspace. Yeah, hundred percent, man. And we're excited to follow and, and support you and kind of watch you go through that process as we're all figuring out our own process, right? It's never a stagnant thing and you never know you're never there, right? You're never at a hundred percent knowledge when it comes to hunting or photography or whatever you want to apply it to any discipline that's worthwhile. Um, but dude, if nothing else, you know, we we've rolled over an hour here. If nothing else, this has proven to me, Chris, we need to have a, a part two on here as soon as you, as soon as you have a chance to breathe, man, and you can get more than four hours of sleep or whatever you're getting these days. Yeah, it's, it's very little, but yeah, I mean, I'd love to do a follow-up, especially like come close the season or like early next year, just to kind of debrief because what's transpired in my mind has changed a lot, even in the last month. Um, just learning from this and experiencing that failure and setback and looking forward to like, what's really like kickoff to the season out here. Like we are weeks behind where we were at. And I really think like the next week or two is going to feel like kickoff to season for my buddy and I doing the bow hunt and then like me proper in October. Um, yeah. And this year has been great for the animals. Yeah. Like the, the bulls I've been seeing too, because it's been so hot and wet, um, as miserable as it's made us as hunters, like it's translated really well to growth for these animals. Like they're just putting on the pounds. Those like antlers are just as big as anything. They're, they're just mutants Mm. freaks. So, um, this is the year to really, you know, push for a giant. If you can get one, you just got to struggle through that pain, you know, like it's just all that, that type two fun until you finally put it together. A hundred percent. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to, to kind of watch your process along the way, follow along behind the scenes and, um, and see how that goes. And I'm a total supporter of a, of a post hunt follow-up podcast. You know, I'd love to kind of hear what kind of new introspectives you get, you know, being out there and, and, and doing it firsthand like that. And, um, and I think you're doing, you're doing everything right, man. I think your audience, you know, you're speaking our language here at Hunt Lefty, you know, all of our, all of our team members and everybody are really going to, you know, can, can relate with everything that, that you're hitting on. Um, and us at all, you know, just striving to be better outdoorsmen, you know, and, 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 uh, we all have that passion for those animals that we love so dearly. A lot of people don't understand it and under, you know, or, or respect that, but, you know, our passion for the elk and the mule deer and all of these animals out there, it's there and it's, it's kind of burning throughout the year in anticipation for right now, you know, and, um, uh, but you know, your audience is going to grow and, uh, and, and, um, we're all super excited and, and wish you the best of luck on your hunt. I appreciate it. Thank you guys. Yeah. Bobby, you've been quiet this one, man. You got any closing thoughts for us? Man, I've been listening and just acknowledging <laughs> and just loving this story, man. And I, I'm really excited to get him on and hear about the successful season he had. And, you know, I, I just felt like I've never felt like I was more a part of sitting back and just enjoying so much of a conversation before. So it was great, awesome. man. I'm sure I'll have some stories to tell, good or bad. But, yeah, there'll be a learning process. So uh, I'll chat to you guys, I guess, in a couple of months. And good luck on yours too. I know I'm not the only one out there. So yeah, heck yeah, man. Absolutely. Chris, where can, uh, where can people find you and your phenomenal photography on social media? 
I almost always have to look it up. Um, it's <laughs> C-B-I-E-N-K-O, C-B-I-N-K-O. Um, if you follow the Hunt, Lift, Eat guys, I'm sure they'll circulate something at this time when this goes live. But uh, yeah, like um, it's, a, it's a small following, I'll say, but it's a loyal one. And I really appreciate the guys that tag along and engage. Like I really tried to just not dwell on numbers or anything like that just like curate really good people around the work that i build so that's what i've done and you guys have been a great part of that and i really do appreciate the support of of you and your community outstanding man yeah well we're happy to support you know worthwhile people and as our ceo always says you know high tides raise all ships and you know that's the only way any of us are going to get through this man is by supporting each other and growing with each other so we appreciate you man and thanks for jumping on We'll have to recap when you get back and tell us your uh, success story with your elk, um, whether that means you you killed one or not, but we want to hear about it, man. So we appreciate it. And uh, listeners, as always, we appreciate the hell out of you guys. Um, go follow Hunt Lift Eat Official if you don't already, and go follow the Hunt Lift Eat podcast. Shout out to, uh, what are we at, Bobby? Almost 400 followers, crushing it. Can't Moving me. on up Can't in the world. Me. Moving Catching on up, up the sky steps. That's right. Get out of here. Baby <laughs> That's steps. Right. That's right. Cam Haynes is going to follow us tonight. So listeners, we appreciate the hell out of you guys. And we will talk to you next week.